and welcome to this week's Scottish Educators Connect podcast. You're here with me, Anita. And me, James. Over the past three weeks in Scottish Educators Connect Book Club, we've been exploring Richard Gerver's Education, A Manifesto for Change. Throughout the book groups, we've been sharing the contents of the book in our unique Scottish context and have explored leadership, collaboration, relationships and more. And today we are absolutely delighted to be joined by the author himself, Richard Gerver. Hello there, Richard. Hi, James. Hi, Anita. It's an absolute joy to be with you. And thank you for spending the last three years of your lives and all of those people in your book club going through um, my book. It's been an absolute thrill to hear about. Hi, Richard. Thank you very much for joining us. I wish that we'd been running for three years, but we spent the last three weeks reading your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Honestly, you've no idea how exciting it is to know that you two are the ones that actually bought it. So thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you so much um, for joining us. And I am really excited to probe a little bit further into the mind behind the writing. Yeah. Now, most of our listeners are participants in our book club, but for those of you, but for those who are not, can you share with us who you are, what do you do, and what are your interests? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was for a very long time a primary school teacher and then a primary school principal, um, and uh, I I did that for just a, just under two decades. Um, and we might come on to it as the, the as we continue our conversation. Um, and then about 14 years ago, uh, not because I was incompetent or because I was fed up or any of those things, I left frontline, although some might argue differently, I guess, um, I left frontline education to work as a speaker and an author, um, initially around education, innovation, transformation, um, and then increasingly, um, specializing in leadership and human potential and uh, change. Um, and so really it's been uh, amazing, an amazing, amazing journey um, that I've been on for a very long time, but education will always be at the core of my passion and my beliefs. Um, so yeah, that's me. Absolutely fabulous, Richard. It's great to get to hear a little more around about you. And we followed you on Twitter for some time. Over this last term, which for, as in Scotland, has been since August of this year, Scottish mm. Educators Connect has been exploring leadership and values. On our podcasts, we've heard from head teachers, OBEs, government education leaders, educational psychologists, and class teachers. And we know that your leadership journey has taken you in many directions. So could you tell us a bit more around about your journey as a leader? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the first thing to say is I don't, it's, when I look back on my career, particularly um, into leadership in, in education, I don't think I ever had a master plan. You know, I wasn't one of those people that thought, oh, I'm going to do X number of years here and move into this and move into that. Um, in many ways, I'm an, I was an accidental um leader. Uh, I started teaching in the, the right at the beginning of the 1990s. And it was at a time where the UK government was um, slashing um, funding in schools quite dramatically. And as a result, 
uh, a number of teachers in their early to late 50s were being offered incentives to take early retirement, which created quite a vacuum in the system. Um, and so I found myself kind of being promoted at various points very early, not because I was talented, but frankly, because I was breathing um, and, and still, in, <laughs> still in school. So I found myself um, climbing through the, the system quite quickly, I think, you know, moving into a deputy headship after five years of teaching and then after seven years, um, accidentally again becoming a a head teacher. I'd actually been seconded by the local government um, from my deputy uh, position to work on developing programs to remotivate demotivated boys in, in reading and writing. And as part of that process, quite early on in that um, secondment, I went into uh, Grange Primary School, a school on the Derbyshire-Nottinghamshire border, right on the cusp between the two uh, cities. Um, and fell in love, fell in love with the school, fell in love with the community, um, found out that they had had not had a substantive head for nearly 18 months. Um, and that the acting head who had been uh, the deputy at the school for over 30 years and actually in her tenure had been acting head on at least three separate occasions, had absolutely no desire to take on the job. Anyway, I went back to the um, director of education in the local authority and told him I'd fallen in love. And amazingly, he encouraged me to go, go for it, apply for the job, apply for the headship, Richard, you really should. So I did um, and got the job. You can imagine, um, you know, for, for any, you know, anyone out there who's listening who gets that phone call to tell them they've got a job they really want or what have you, you kind of, your ego takes off for about 24 hours. You float on air, you walk differently down the street, particularly when you've been given the position, position as a principal, suddenly you walk differently, you know, like John Travolta or something in Saturday Night Fever. And honestly, I thought I was, I thought I was a god. Uh, amongst women and men. I thought I was the, the new great education guru until the following day, um, the director of education, when I signed my contract, informed me that I had actually been the only applicant for the post. Oh, no. <laughs> no, really, yeah. Um, and so, so that, uh, and he also said in the, the same conversation, about 15 seconds after I signed my contract, he said, just to let you know, Richard, that the current government has Grange, your new school, slated for closure under what was then called the Phoenix program, which was basically a program where schools they felt were too hard to shift would be closed down. Everybody would be sacked, including the governors. The school would be rebranded, restaffed with a brand new team and relaunched. Um, hence, I was the only applicant. So, yeah, my leadership career <laughs> began in, in really very interesting circumstances. But I've got to be honest, I think, I, you know, in hindsight, it was absolutely the right move for me because I wasn't necessarily that ambitious, but had fallen in love with the school and the school community. And it stood me and I hope them in very good stead for what came next. Wow, what a journey and what a way to keep the passion alive as well. <laughs> I like that you, <laughs> you're an accidental leader. I really like that. Um, in our podcast series, we have been asking guests to share with us somebody who has influenced them a lot in their own journey. Can you tell us about one person who's influenced you as a leader? Oh, it's, it, this is such a hard question, Anita. There have been so, so many. So look, I'm going to 
I'm going to cheat if that's all right and give you and I'm actually I'm actually going to give you three and and you can you can re-edit it if you want and just cut the other two out and then you can choose which one and smoothly smoothly just go into yes I'll give you one um there are three really along the way um the first I think was um, my teacher. You know, we've all got them, right? We've all had teachers when we were children ourselves who made a massive difference to our lives. And I won't tell the whole whole story now. Um, in fact, it was the first two people are both um, I talk about in my, my TED speech. But um, the first was my teacher, um, who was called David Drew Smythe. Um, who, when I was nine and my parents were going through a spectacularly messy divorce, um, and I, as a result, you know, suffered some of the emotional fallout that many children go through in that time in their lives, um, I, I started to stutter because of nerves. I started to do all sorts of spectacularly awful things for a nine-year-old, like wet the bed and things like that. And, and David was there for me and really took a deep, deep interest in, in me as a human being and could see, you know, I was going through various issues with behavior and stuff and just really spent time trying to climb inside my head and try and help me out. And one of the things he, funnily enough, got me involved in was drama because he was convinced that if I spoke somebody else's lines, um, I wouldn't be as nervous and it might help with the, the nervous stammer. And indeed it did, you know, so... He was the first. He really taught me um, that leadership wasn't about systems and structures, but was about people. Um, the second was a child in my very first class as a young teacher, a little boy called Gary, um, who, again, had he had uh, extraordinary number of very severe special needs. Um, and and at the heart of many of his problems was was severe dyspraxia. Um, and his, his ability to overcome challenges and obstacles, to see the bright side and optimism in everything, was, was truly inspirational. Um, and he taught me so much about being a teacher and I suppose ultimately a leader. And then the third one, and I have to mention him, is, is a man who many people have felt the loss of in the last couple of months. A man who became a dear friend of mine and actually my professional father, Sir Ken Robinson who I yeah. met very early on in my um, tenure at Grange. Um, and it was before he became, as, as we used to jokingly describe him, Ted Ken. It was before he became a global phenomenon. Um, and he was, in those days, just a bog-standard genius. Um, and, and I was incredibly fortunate early on in my headship to have him there, to not just be a cheerleader, but to challenge me, to push and stretch my thinking, to introduce me to people that might be able to broaden my horizons and also to lift me out of just doing the day job, if you know what I mean, and, and, and have the opportunity to be really intellectually stimulated by a whole range of people who I think really helped me develop as, as a leader. So it was about, you know, those three steps. It's about the, the, the precision and importance of humanity it was about the absolute belief in optimism and finding ways round and over obstacles. And it was about broadening my knowledge and experience as and whenever I could. Thank you, Richard. I did wonder if Sir Ken might get a mention in this uh, podcast episodes after having listened to you before. So thank you for sharing all three of those inspirational people that have uh, contributed to your leadership journey. And I think we'll keep that one. There's no editing needing because they've all, they've all contributed <laughs> in different ways. Um, 
this one though I'm going to be a bit more strict. So this one's got to stick to two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the <laughs> trickiest things that we get our guests to do is to think of only two values which embody their professional and their personal persona. If you had to choose just two values that have guided mm -hmm. you both personally and professionally, um, what would those two values be and why? Oh, my God. Um, you're right. It's a really hard question, but I will stick oh, yeah. to two. Um, the, <laughs> first is, uh, the first is integrity. Um, and again, this is, a, I think so many, and I'm sure other people listening will, will feel the same. So many mm. of the, 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 the values that drive us as human beings come from our own personal experiences, um, and, and our own lives and integrity is deep. I remember when my uh, maternal grandfather passed away and, and I had a very close relationship with him because in many ways he became a surrogate father during the time of my parents, um, divorce and we lived with my grandparents for a while um we became very close and, and when he died when i was still um very young i remember being stood by his uh graveside um and i come from a jewish heritage jewish background and jewish funerals for anyone that's ever experienced them will know just how stark and horrific they are um and and one of the things that the male members of the mourners have to do is fill in the grave so as you can imagine that moment where you have to put the dirt on on the coffin in in the graveside is is pretty deeply emotional and something as a child you never forget actually um mm -hmm. Anyway, I was stood there and really quite emotional. And this um, old chap came up to me and put his arm over my shoulder. He could see I was was upset. And he said, um, you know, I, I worked with your grandfather most of his life. And I have to tell you, I've never met a, another human being with a greater level of integrity ever. And as a young kid, you know, it's funny, you don't have many deep, deep thoughts necessarily. But I remember in that moment thinking, my God, if somebody could say that about me when my time came, then actually that would be my ultimate aspiration. So integrity has been deeply um, important to me. Uh, and the other thing I think that, that's really important, the other, the other value would be um, similar, really, would be authenticity. Um, you know, I, I for years have believed that and particularly in leadership, I think um, you have to know that not every decision you take is going to be universally popular. Not every decision is going to be agreed with, you know, and, and I think this is particularly pertinent now, both in the education space and actually in the wider space in the world. Um, I feel very sad that there has been so much polarization, not just in, in wider society around so many divisive issues, but also I think in the last decade or so in education, where we seem to have increasingly found ourselves polarized again into camps and views and, and the way we think things should be done. And the thing I've always believed is, is to, to say and do what I absolutely believe in. Um, and, and I respect anybody else that does the same in the knowledge that I know that whilst I might not always agree with them and they might not always agree with me, um, both of us, whatever our positions might be, come from a position 
that is steeped in authenticity. In other words, we believe it. And I used to say to my staff when I was a head teacher, look, you might not always agree with everything I say or ask you to do, but you need to know that I absolutely believe in anything I ask you to do. And what's really interesting, I think, when you, you portray that um, characteristic with your colleagues is whilst they might sometimes get huffy with you, they totally respect you and will try and make everything work because they know you believe in what you're asking them to be involved in. Thank you, Richard. I think um, integrity and authenticity certainly come through in your book, which our book club has been reading. Mm. Um, so we read Education, A Manifesto for Change in our book club. And I know that all of the participants have been inspired by some of the messages that you communicate. And there are very clear links to the two books that we'd read previous years, which were Dare to Lead by Brene Brown and Michael Fullen's Leading in a Culture of Change. What are hmm. your hopes for this book? Wow. First of all, I mean, what an unbelievable honour to be in, in the company of Brené Brown and Michael Fuller. My goodness me. <laughs> you, frankly, frankly, if I didn't have a big enough ego this evening, I will be insufferable <laughs> in my house tonight. <laughs> trust me. Uh, you, you just need to know you have built, built a rod for my family that they will never thank you for. But I, I love you both. Thank you so much. Um, look, I mean, for me, it goes back to something I hinted at, I think, when I was talking a little bit about authenticity. The first thing to say is actually um, I never thought I would write another book that was specifically about education. You know, I'd, I'd been out of education when I started planning education to manifesto for change for about a decade. And I knew that there were new voices and more authentic and current voices in and around the education space. And I didn't want to be one of those people that trotted back into the profession and tried to make out like I was still the, the world's biggest um, expert. Um, so I didn't know the book really was ever going to happen until it happened. And, and funnily enough, as you'll know, for, for those who have, have read it, you know, there were a number of, of weird experiences. But during that decade, I had on a number of occasions thought to myself through the, the extraordinary opportunities and experiences I'd had, I thought, God, I wish I'd known that when I was a school leader or when I was a teacher, you know, um, and, and I'd stored them up. And then a couple of experiences happened just as catalysts to writing the book. One was meeting up with a load of retired teachers who I'd begun my career with, who by the time I'd met them, you know, they, they used to still meet religiously every week, uh, were in their, their mid to late 70s, some of them. And to see the passion in them and the fire and, and the conversations was inspirational. And funnily enough, the second was I did um, an event um, for a dear friend of mine, David Cameron, who's a, a wonderful education voice from Scotland. Um, not the former prime minister, but the real David Cameron. Who many people we know the real on. David Cameron. Yeah. Well. He's a super so, he is. And, and David invited me up to do a creative conversation in Edinburgh a, a few years ago. And I came up and, and a, a young teacher came up to me with a very well-thumbed, um, battered old copy of my first book, Creating Tomorrow's Schools. And she said, God, this is amazing. Would you sign the book for me? And I never thought I'd actually get to hear you talk about education because I didn't think you were involved anymore. And that was kind of a double-edged sword catalyst, really, to, to write the book. 
and I think the reason why it became such a passion, because I only ever write when I really, I describe it to people that it's a bit like starting a new book um, is, is a bit like having a champagne bottle shaken just a little bit too hard. And, it, you know, the cork's ready to explode. And that's when, you know, it's time. I had been so dismayed and upset, I think, over the last decade of seeing the increased often forced fragmentation around the profession, very rarely from educators themselves, but often yeah. from people on the periphery, you know, whether it was policymakers, whether it was friends of policymakers, people who had, um, you know, high level budgets to, to intercept and, mm -hmm. and overtake social media. Um, and really, that was the foundational principle of education and manifesto for change. I wanted to bring people together, not just from inside of education, but from the worlds I've been fortunate enough to stride around outside of it and try and find a common vision and set of common values again to bring people together, to catalyze rich set of questions that we could all engage in in a productive and constructive way to truly look at the vision for the future of education for our children. You know, it goes back to that old African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And what I hope is that the book in some way provides a little catalyst to bring that village together. That's marvellous. Our Scottish Educators Connect book club started as a small group of teachers who wanted to get together and read at the beginning of lockdown. And over the last seven months, it's grown into something more significant. You know, we've now got this podcast. Uh, we have group meetings that meet uh, every single week. We've got a blog with and also plans for 2021. And our practitioners have grown from that small group of teachers to a wider audience of practitioners from across both education and health. And I suppose it links to what you talked there around about that sense of that more collaborative perspective to it taking a village. And what does then genuine collaboration look like for you in that context? Well, I, I think the most important thing is that, that people put aside their egos, they put aside their um, intellectual, necessarily their in intellectual fixed points, um, and they come together, particularly in education, around what we all share to be true, whether, you know, whether we're talking about people from different sectors involved with young people, whether we're talking about people within our own sector who may have very polarized views of the way we should educate. The one thing we can all agree on is we do what we do because we desperately want to make a difference for young people and we want to help to prepare them to thrive, not just survive, but thrive in their futures. Now, we may have differing opinions about how we do that, but that's the starting point. And I think for me, that's the key. If we can come together and establish that and say, okay, what kind of people do we need our children to look like as human beings in order to thrive in this incredibly turbulent, very fast moving, ever changing world? then surely we can come together and find some common values on which we can use all of our knowledge, all of our experience, all of our passion to create something really meaningful for, for our children. So I think it's finding that point of, of 
what we have in common of shared values. It's about parking our egos and necessarily our own personal beliefs and saying, okay, how can we construct and build something new from our shared wisdom, knowledge and experience? I feel really inspired, Richard. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Just listening to you talk, it just, it feels like you're talking about Scottish Educators Connect and you know James and I mention often <laughs> to anyone who'll listen hmm. that you know we started this book club completely by accident when we'd kind of met each other on Twitter um, at the, the start of lockdown in, in April this year and from that I think our passion and desire for genuine conversation and collaboration around educational issues has really inspired us to keep Scottish Educators Connect going even when you know we're back at work full-time James is in a really important head teacher role <laughs> we're we're with the kids all the time but it feels like the, the behind the scenes work of setting up and running a book club and a podcast it's really worth it when you listen to the discussions that are happening at our weekly meetings and you can see the passion and desire that practitioners in Scotland have for the children and young people we serve. Um, and it feels like you've just described that in, in, in your definition of, of true, genuine collaboration. Well, thank you. And, and thank you both for what you've done, by the way, because, you know, it, it is leaders like you who are currently in the system, who are bringing people together and harnessing and catalyzing those conversations and those actions that are the future of our, our system. And, and what you're doing is amazing. And it shows actually the appetite, the extraordinary appetite out there from our colleagues to want to be involved in that movement and, and that development. And it takes people like you to, to bring those groups together. So I'm, I'm genuinely deeply humbled to be able to be a part of this podcast with you and, and particularly for you to have, have shared my book too. Um, you know, I, I know as I head into my dotage and my rocking chair in the next few <laughs> years, I'll look back, you know, I go back to, Ken and I for many years, and, and forgive me for mentioning him again, you can imagine he was a, a hugely important part, not just of my life, but many people's life. We talked a lot about legacy and, and you know, both personal legacy, professional legacy, wider legacy. And in many ways, when I sit back in my dotage, if, if I can think in some tiny, tiny way that my work has led to that next generation of educator making things better and moving things on for our kids, then frankly, I can smile, sip my whiskey and know <laughs> that my uh, work, work here has been done as I as I slip into uh, another episode of some frightful box set and leave you all to it. So <laughs> absolutely brilliant. And also, by the way, I think what's hugely important is that, you know, what you've done, this has been born out of lockdown and one of the toughest, most challenging um, times in, in all of our histories. But in education, you know, like healthcare, it's been truly unspeakable. And what you've all accomplished is, is amazing. And I just urge all of you, as and when hopefully life springs back to a kind of normalcy, in 2021 2022 that you don't lose this momentum and, and you grow and build on it because that's when the real difference can be made to the future i don't yeah. think our participants would let us give up now james i think we're <laughs> good 
<laughs> Most definitely. Thank you, Richard. It has been just wonderful to have you on our podcast. And I know that our listeners will um, enjoy getting to you getting to know you more, especially those who have been swatting up with your book over the past fortnight or so. How can our listeners find out a little bit more about you and your work? Where can they where can they go for more information? Well, they, if they, they go to my website, which is richardgerver.com, there's lots of info on there and there's links to videos and, and my YouTube channel, which I hope people might find interesting and also details about my, my other books and, and what have you. Um, and, and I would love people to connect with me too on, on Twitter or via email. So Twitter's the best place, which is just at Richard Gerver. Um, and one of the things, again, I think is really important. Anyone that ever reaches out to me, I, I'm frankly, I'm thrilled anyone wants to. Um, and secondly, as a result, I will I will promise to connect with anybody that has questions, insights, something they want to share. Um, I'd be delighted to hear from people. So either the website or through Twitter would be absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Richard. And we'll be sure to link both of them, their website and your Twitter. In- the promo for the podcast which is which is great and uh, uh we can both vouch for that you got back to us um extremely quickly and yeah. uh, agreeing to do this podcast so thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us this evening and just being left with these nuggets i think for reflection as we come to as you mentioned the end of an extremely challenging year and looking ahead into into building back better which is which is great and Anita, that's a wrap. It's been wrap. seven months, seven books, 22 podcast episodes, 25,000 blog views. Um, and yeah, it's on to 2021. So what's next? <laughs> Can you believe it, James? A rest is needed. Um, in January, we are back with a new book and new learning opportunities for our listeners and participants as we explore the deeply, deeply important issue of childhood poverty in the UK and schooling. Um, We will advertise more after the new year for those of you who would like to join. So folks, keep your eyes peeled. And if you're a keen bean like James is, I know, then you can already purchase the book, which is Professor Morag Trainer's Child Poverty Aspiring to Survive. In the meantime, you can always go back and listen to the podcast or read what's already been covered on our blog. A big, big, huge thank you to all of our listeners. This has been the strangest years for teachers and health professionals alike, but you did it. You've made it to Christmas. And James and I and all at Scottish Educators Connect wish you all a very, very, merry festive period and hope you are hopeful for the happiest of new years. James, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yes.